got put in Facebook jail this week. No. For a full 24 hours. I, what happened? I need to know because I've never been put in Facebook jail because I don't touch Facebook. Okay. So <laughs> crazy. So I've gotten, it's all because of her story on the rocks. stuff. <laughs> So I've gotten in trouble before for things like, um, like when I posted about the triangle factory fire, like I'll put like a picture of like the women laying on the street dead, which like on Facebook you can't do, but like, it's not an aggressive picture. It's just like a picture and Instagram's fine with it and Twitter's fine with it. So when I get up and post at 6am, you don't think about that. I don't think about it. I just click, 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 click (laughs) because I'd make the post at night and then copy and paste it in, in the morning. Yeah. So that one was fine. But then this week I did that artist who like took famous nude shots. Allie, you know, it's so funny as I was swiping through and I was like, whoo, can you put a nude photograph on you line? Can. You can. You can. <laughs> Apparently not on Facebook. Not on Facebook. Um, but for 24 hours, I could not post anything on Facebook personal or her story. Oh on my the gosh. But I could look. I couldn't even like anybody's anything. That's crazy. It was you know what? How We're are other people? <laughs> how are other people allowed to function? Because I see people post the worst things I've ever seen in my life. Disgusting like, things. Disgusting, racist things. But anyway, we're we're not here to talk about Facebook jail. <laughs> no, we're here to talk about history on the rocks with Katie and Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history, and we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because the women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time, and we are not historians so when we mess up you can tell us but i'm gonna tell katie a story Mm -hmm. and serve her a cocktail and katie's gonna tell me a story and serve me a cocktail we're gonna make mistakes we're gonna say ridiculous things last (laughs) week we talked about butt shaving by the end yeah if you didn't make it there go back and listen yeah sorry (laughs) but you're busy you're so busy (laughs) i mean i'm pretty sure that You've gotten to the point where all of the pencil, the colored pencils in your box are dull Mm. and you have to like just go through and sharpen every single one. Yep. Absolutely. I'm sure every artist is like, yes. And everyone else is like, what What do you mean? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you're busy doing that. So you can't take time away from that to Google these women because you don't want to lose your honor roll. You just don't want to lose your momentum. Mm-hmm. So in order for you to get a beautiful picture of these women in your head, we're going to describe what they look like for you. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? A, that was a really good one. It was pretty on, good. I hope, it, I hope it sounds just as good when I listen back. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, that was really good. And I listened back to the episode. I'm like, wow, that was horrible sound- randy jackson would not be pleased <laughs> cool dog um a little pitchy <laughs> so i am doing grace lee boggs and grace is the daughter of two chinese immigrants to the united states in her younger years the 1930s and 40s she had dark hair that's parted just a little bit to the side and is curled lightly at her shoulder um, but she's always like wearing these like killer black, like tube tops or like mm, off the shoulder okay. shirts, which I was like, get it girl. <laughs> and then most pictures you see though are of her in her older years where she has short white hair, no 
knowing eyes and a big smile. There we and go. And that's what Grace looks like. <laughs> Who are you doing? What does she look like? Um, I'm doing Vice Admiral Dr. Joycelyn Elders. Um, wow. I know. <laughs> lots of titles. More titles uh, than Professor Emeritus. <laughs> Literally, she's Vice Admiral Dr. Professor Emeritus. She's the coolest. Wait, she's that. That's what I wanted to be. A Professor Emeritus? No, 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 no. Oh. No. <laughs> Mrs. Dr. Professor yeah. Mommy Alley. <laughs> so anyways, um, she has a round face with small eyes and these full lips that often don red lipstick. And when she smiles, it is just like beautiful, bright white teeth. She has a short, I know she has short brown hair that is usually worn in some kind of curled bob. And over the years, she has worn all sorts of glasses. But in the 80s and 90s, they are Typically large round glasses. <laughs> and if she is not in a doctor's coat or a power suit, you can see her in her military uniform. Okay. And that's what you look like. Wow. <laughs> um, so we do have a cocktail here. Yes, we do. I have not tasted it. I'm a little nervous. Um, it's called <laughs> Revolution Daily. Okay. Uh, and anything I looked up for like revolutions or rebellions are all like takes on like really spicy things i was thinking like it reminds me of like cuba yes and i was thinking a lot of them probably did like rum they did <laughs> and so this one's interesting it's an ounce of mezcal and then three-fourths of an ounce of tequila so Ooh, it has both okay. which we've never done double weird. trouble yeah and then three-fourths of an ounce of simple syrup and a half an ounce of lime juice and then you pour it over ice but it has cilantro mixed in with the ice and then there's dried paprika on the edge i'm very excited i don't know Cheers. what's about to happen so here we go i love it i love the cilantro that's so oh good my gosh i I'm so sorry for anyone who has that thing where cilantro tastes like soap because i know it's like a I real love cilantro it is a I, thing it's such a thing i love it so much and yeah i just feel so bad for people whose like tongues have that thing on them that make it taste bad because it's so delicious and this is shockingly refreshing for, for how crazy i thought it was gonna crazy be it is i um i'm really impressed and i also was really worried about the paprika because i have yeah. chapped lips <laughs> um, but it wasn't too bad <laughs> i also i'm gonna say i want to add cilantro to margaritas now yeah that's the feeling it's the, the future vibe, of margaritas it's the future of margaritas <laughs> heard it here first <laughs> as you always say heard it here first um yeah i'm very excited i think this is delicious so well, great home we're, run keep, alley. we're keeping the season <laughs> nine vibe going good cocktails only good cocktails cross your fingers katie you could be the first one to ruin it i might be <laughs> um okay so tell me what you know about grace lee boggs i think she was an activist yep and that's all i know <laughs> great that's all i knew perfect um so we're just gonna get into her story that we've got some like good american history to just like make us all depressed and excellent. that's what we're gonna do today excellent you're gonna be like wait things haven't changed yeah. <laughs> isn't that the worst part about like covering <laughs> activists you're like god it's not that different unfortunately <laughs> like, oh man come on <laughs> just kidding everybody has an impact um, right 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 <laughs> so I read a lot of articles about Grace. She didn't pass away too long ago, so there was a lot out about her. And then I watched a documentary about her called American Revolutionary, The Evolution of Grace Lee Boggs. Okay. So 
Grace Lee was born on June 27, 1915 in Rhode Island above her family's restaurant. Her given Chinese name was Yu Ping, which means Jade Peace. Her dad was Ching Li and her mom was Yin Lang Ning. Um, both her parents immigrated to the United States to Seattle from China. Her father um, shortened his surname, though, to be just Lee to kind of assimilate a little better mm-hmm. into American culture. Grace's parents kind of have a checkered past. Okay. So, A, her dad was married when he was in China, but his first wife was unable to bear any sons, so he divorced her and married somebody younger. Oh, my God. So, girl babies matter. Just putting that out there. Yeah. I hate that. Absolutely. I hate that, too. Was she able to have kids in general and just, like, didn't have any boys? That's all it said. Or was it it unclear? It was all it said. So Grace's mother is the second younger wife. Okay. Um, But Grace's mother didn't have an easy go at it either. Yin, her mother, had been born to such a poor family that her uncle sold her into slavery. (gasps) Oh, my God. Crazy. But then her mom escaped and... I, I don't know. There's all kinds of se- like side sexism over here. And I just. You want me to give it a little. Yeah. Want to give it- yeah. Sad sexism. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I was waiting for it. So <laughs> no, I just, I want to say two things. Love your daughter babies and don't sell your nieces into sla- slavery. Uh, don't sell anyone into slavery. <laughs> Specifically <laughs> your nieces. <laughs> um, so this is what Grace said of her mother in a speech that she gave in 1993. My mother was a rebel all her life. She never learned to read or write. There were no schools for females in the little Chinese village where she grew up. She used to tell us stories of how she and her little brother had to steal food from the graves of ancestors to survive. When she was nine, her uncle sold her for work, but she ran away. In 1911, on the boat coming from China to the U.S., she gave birth to my sister on the floor in steerage. (gasps) This woman's a badass. Oh, my God. Like, been through it. And Grace said that she was just, like, an early feminist hero for her. Mm. Her mom. Which, so who cool. doesn't love a feminist hero mom? Oh, <laughs> they're the best. They're great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so tired of supportive dads. <laughs> we get it. You like your dad. <laughs> been there, done that. What about your mom? <laughs> Where'd she go? Is this a Disney movie? Is she dead? Um, so, Grace had five siblings. Catherine. Edward, Philip, Robert, and Harry. There we go. Okay. That, named after all the kings and queens. I was going to say, this sounds like the Windsors. <laughs> um, or the Tudors. Um, <laughs> both of them, really. Yeah. Uh, and she said of her childhood, I don't know why I am the way I am, but I think it has something to do with the fact that I'm both female and I was born Chinese. And I haven't unpacked that yet. So... <laughs> She's still unpacking in her 90s, trying to figure it out. That's literally the best any of us can do is just keep unpacking. If you have someone who's like, oh, I'm completely unpacked. I figured it out. You're like, "Mm." (laughs) are you? I don't want to be your friend anymore. Yeah, no. (laughs) Stay away from me. You're dangerous. So her father later opened a popular restaurant in New York City on Broadway that opened in 1924. He's selling Chinese food, and it's just so popular. Uh, So she grew up in Jackson Heights, Queens. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. But she watched the Great Depression in New York, and this had a big impact on her. She saw Union Square full of people. There's shacks. There's unemployment. There's, you know— laying the seeds of activism in her life. She wasn't Mm -hmm. an activist as a kid, but she sees that people are struggling. 
but she was living a very comfortable existence because even in this time in the Great Depression, her father's restaurant did really, really well. So she's also a freaking genius, Katie. She's 16 years old, gets into Bernard College on a scholarship. And she says, college is like upper class culture. And I didn't want to be different. So I tried to do all the college things. I'm joining groups. I'm running for offices of these groups. I become kind of part of the offices in the Women's Athletic Association. But everything in college seemed wrong to me. It was barren. Hmm. I mean, this I think is pretty impressive in the 1920s as an Asian American woman to get into college on a scholarship and be elected into all these committees. Yeah, that's incredible. She doesn't even address that. She's just like, I did it. It's fine. (laughs) I like that she's like, I'm not done yet. Let's move on from that. Even though it's like that would literally be enough. And you're like, (laughs) yeah, exactly. (laughs) Whatever. That's not my whole story. Which, you know, I love that it's not. That's cool. It really is. And her story goes on literally forever. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So she's in college and she's like, everything I'm doing here feels so empty. So she takes a philosophy class. And is blown away. Blown away. She drops all of her other classes and starts (gasps) taking, like, only philosophy. That is so rare because normally when you take a philosophy class, you're like, wow, I hate this more than I even thought I would. Yeah. This is horrible. You're like, I don't even know what the word the means anymore because when I say it, it's overanalyzed. It's Um, so terrifying. I dated a philosophy major and I don't get it. I don't get it either. Uh, like, I'm a German philosophy. I'm a German philosophy major. I was like, I don't know what that. I don't want to talk about. I don't want really. to talk about. Let's any talk of that. about anything. Yeah. School things. <laughs> Do you know about sports? <laughs> Soccer. Good luck. Good luck to you and yours, though. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you well. I bid you adieu. <laughs> that was one of my favorite things I said last year in a drunken tirade. Actually technically this year because it was new year's eve um you gotta say it sometimes i said i I called my best friend and i was like and a happy glenn stilts to you and yours alone (laughs) (laughs) you were you were on a drunk tirade on new year's i was getting texts at like 4 a.m i don't know what was happening you know it's how you know (laughs) i was like wow katie is up that's how you know yeah wasted listen if we're gonna sing disney we gotta (laughs) we started early this week way too early (laughs) (laughs) um okay so she's in these philosophy classes and she's like i love mead i love kent but i really really love georg wilhelm friedrich hegel wow i thought she was gonna say nietzsche No, nope. <laughs> be like i love that uberman <laughs> <laughs> no but you'll know this guy's kind of philosophy when okay. you hear it so hegel believed that truth was in the contradictions and she was like reading this guy's writing was like listening to music for me i could gobble it up i loved it so what it is is you're presented with a question one person answers the other person answers and then the truth is in the middle <gasps> okay which is like something that a lot of people like they do it on harry potter and the sacred text sometimes yeah. they like it's something that people do when they're having big discussions she believes this so profound because she thinks that it keeps people from settling on old ideas mm. which is what she thinks is the biggest problem in america is that even if you're a progressive person you keep settling on an old idea that's true yeah yeah so she's very 
This is a very smart person. I had to like really read. You know, sometimes when like you can skim, yeah. I had to like stop and focus on sentences. That and but it's so true. It is. Yeah, the truth is in the middle. It's in the contradiction. No, absolutely. And I think that a part of this it sounds like is always also questioning and be like, okay, but like what are we getting wrong now so that, you know, we can do more good later. Right. And it's like, like why exactly do I think this and what impacted me to think this? And why do you think that? So, okay. Get it, Grace. I don't, it's also why social media algorithms are really, really terrible because it takes you away from a contradiction. Yeah. So you're, you're no longer confronting your adversary, like, or opposing thoughts. You're now like focusing only on yourself. Anyway. So she graduates in 1935 and then immediately goes to grad school and at 25 years old gets her Hold PhD on. in philosophy. I'm so sorry. She graduated in 1935. Yeah. With her bachelor's. This is right before World War II. That's II. incredible. I know. And then gets her PhD at 25 years old in philosophy as an Asian American woman in the midst of World War II in America. Okay. Right. Never addressed. Never addressed in any articles. No idea what's going on. <laughs> I am frankly blown away. I know. Maybe we should change that to Gracely. I'm Gracely blown away. <laughs> Gracely? I can't handle this. <laughs> and, and I mean, she is a philosopher. In every single thing and interview I saw her in, she just talks circles around people. And I mean, even in her 90s is like, like but why? I, I can't even Im- impersonate the kinds of smart <laughs> things she said. She's so smart. I was so confused. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. So she tries to get a job, of course, and everybody's like, no, 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 no. We don't hire young Asian-American women to work in academia. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. So then she tries to get jobs at, like, department stores, and they said, and I quote, we don't hire Orientals. So she was like, well, this is the East Coast. Like, maybe somebody will help me out in Chicago. So she gets on a train and goes to Chicago. Choo, choo. And then... (laughs) Thank you. I couldn't picture it without that. Listen, it's really important. (laughs) So actually, the University of Chicago is like, listen, we have this philosophy library. We need somebody to like shelf books and do library things like clerical stuff. We'll pay you $10 a week. Oh, $10 a week. I mean, a week in the 1940s. That's kind of shitty. But okay. (laughs) Okay. But then $10 a week isn't enough to live somewhere. So she has to go around Chicago looking for somewhere to live. This lady's like, you can live in my basement for free, but you have to contend with the rats. And she's like, okay, I hate rats, but like, I'll try it. So one day she's walking home from work. I'm going to sound effect this. There we go. (laughs) I got it. There we go. And she comes across a group of people who are protesting rat infested housing. And this was her first true interaction with the black community. She's like, you know, of course, you know, there's black people in New York at our restaurant all the time, but this black community was dealing with what I was dealing with rat infested housing. So I I really started to connect with them. Like I I'm also right now being marginalized and would really like to get rid of this rat infested housing. So I'm in, I'm in (laughs) on this protest. Um, and Because America had joined World War II, the Great Depression had kind of ended for white workers, but not for people of color. And she said living in Chicago, she had always thought of people of color struggling as a statistic, but now it looked like people to her. Yeah. 
So, and this is before the term people of color existed. Mm -hmm. She obviously in her old, like interviews always uses the phrase like the Negro, like pretty regularly. Yeah. But there wasn't like a collective group of marginalization at that time. It's like Mm -hmm. black people and white people and that's it. Right. So that's, she's kind of identifying with the black community. So in 1941, uh, Martin Luther King, 1941, Martin Luther King's planning a march on Washington. This is well before the 1961. And he's like, you know, we got to get tens of thousands of black people here and white people and, you know, grace. And we're going to (laughs) go. And grace. And grace. That's what Martin Luther King said. He said it. And grace. (laughs) (laughs) And grace. Poor Peggy. Okay. Peggy died. Um, So he's like, we need to make sure that like, Black people can work in the defense fund. Like, we have to. And um, tens of thousands of people are going to march on D.C. And FDR is like, we do not need this right now. Like, this is a war. Let me sign this executive order to, like, end discrimination in defense funds. And she goes, I realized for the first time, if you organize, you can get shit done. Like, really done. So then she enters a two-decade-long dedication to Marxism. There we go. Which, as Americans and, like, born and bred, it's like, communism is bad. Oh, yeah, it doesn't age well. No, it immediately, like, turns your stomach. But when when you kind of stop and think about communism, it was, like, exactly what she wanted for the working class yeah so a well, and it still makes sense like you know does, like there yeah. are still like so many things where like again it like you're right it turns your stomach but then like when you actually sit down and look at the tenants you're like oh right that makes sense it wasn't <laughs> like a direct line to dictatorships originally yeah, it originally to, it wasn't yeah. meant to be yeah right it was like hey the bro- proletariat or the working class which is the people of color in the United States are going to get fed up. They're going to rise up and ask for better wages and overthrow the bourgeois, the super rich capitalist, the 1%, as we say now. And then we're going to have a new fair distribution of labor. Like that makes sense Mm -hmm. to somebody who's struggling with this. So she goes and translates Karl Marx's writings into English. For the first time. Like not all what? of them. Not all of them. But some of his writings had never been translated into English. And she is the person who did that. That's insane. I know. I didn't know she learned German while she was getting her PhD. But I guess because of Hegel was German. Oh, yeah. So like if her PhD is in all these German philosophers, she must have Are learned German. Are her ex-boyfriend the same they person? Probably. Maybe. Is she a vegan? <laughs> <laughs> different guys same guy you never know <laughs> we'll never know because i've only had three boyfriends <laughs> we gotta pick them all up <laughs> there's one who's fiance there's one who's taller than all the greenwoods and there's one that's a vegan so <laughs> now you all know anyway she ber- she begins really working hard for the socialist workers party and her pen name is Rhea Stone. Rhea Stone? Rhea Stone. I love that. Because obviously you can't be connected with the Communist Party at this time in history. Of course the FBI has a file on her that's pretty thick. And it says she's probably Afro-Chinese. Because apparently the only reason you can like be connected with black people is if you are black. I cannot believe that's in there. <laughs> 
<laughs> Listen, personally, having spoken to a potentially dangerous woman, yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's so outrageous. They literally can't fathom it. That, yeah. Like, anyone Who would support black people if they don't have to? People. What? <laughs> Why? So this is where she joins the trajectory the rest of her life goes on focused on the African-American community and civil rights. The majority of the people at this moment in history who are ready for an uprising are black. And she's like, I am in. I love this. Let's rebel. So she was in Chicago and then she was in New York and she's like, but if I want to mobilize workers, Detroit is where I need to be. So I'm going to get up. I'm going to go to Detroit and she's going there to be an editor for this newsletter called the correspondence. And this newsletter is purposely like we want editors that are women, that are people of color, that are young, that are poor. We want it to just be like all these different like intersections of people. There's another person working on this project. His name is James Boggs. Ah, I love it. That's the last name. Every time. Mm-mm. Goes by Jimmy. He is a black auto mechanic worker and social activist. So she goes, one day, we're editing together, and I just invited him to dinner at my house. He came reluctantly and was late and criticized her choice in music, which is Louis Armstrong, which, what the <sighs> fuck? And then... Altogether, she said he was a really unpleasant and contradictory person. But if you're somebody who believes truth is in contradictions, oh my you are falling in love with him. And by the end of the dinner, Jimmy had asked her to marry him. <gasps> what? By yeah. the end of the dinner? The end of the dinner, Katie. Oh, uh, wow. Grace is being crazy. And he was late. So that's like an extra short amount of time. That's yeah. outrageous. <laughs> yes. So Jimmy was from Alabama and had grown up Alabama <laughs> and had grown up in the heat of Southern racism. He had a strong Southern accent for the rest of his life he was a great writer a great thinker he was militant as hell and together they were just an activist force um i'm a movement by myself i love that neo song so okay um if we don't play that at your wedding uh, i'm gonna be really upset about it okay so a lot of people at the time were like, you don't know what it's like to be married to a black man. This is a type of racism like you have not experienced. And also, I didn't know that this could like legally exist. Mm-hmm. I know like Loving v. Virginia was before this, but still it's just like seems she just like never addresses the fact that it's an interracial marriage. She's just like, whatever. Yeah. It happened. Well, because I'm sure there was also part of her were like, oh, they don't care like if minorities marry. Like- right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's true. That's true. Um, and and she she said they were right. They went on their honeymoon in 1953 and on the way home they had to sleep in their car because they weren't allowed in a hotel room like together. So like she's she's realizing that racism is much bigger than her kind of like cushy life in New York at this restaurant where she lived. So she says through their lives they didn't really discuss personal or like racial aspects. His black friends treated her like family. Her family loved him. I never wanted children. She said they were wonderful in a philosophical viewpoint of way. And I didn't want to ruin that. That's what Mm. she said about kids, which I get like, they're terrible once you have them. So, and then they get older and then you're like, I wish they were young again, but you don't really think that. (laughs) So Jimmy and Grace Boggs are a very unlike, 
unlikely couple. Two races, one from the north, one from the south, grew up different socioeconomic statuses, but it didn't matter because when they got home from work every day, they would sit on the floor and get out their yellow yellow legal pads. That's a sentence. Yeah. And then write, just write all night. And apparently... Like, they have this partnership that everybody loved and respected. It was intellectual. And people were, like, they were constantly having discussions and reflections and debates. And that's, like, all they did. You know what that sounds like? It sounds exhausting, honestly. It does. Good for them. I'm so glad that like, they were able to do that. I want to, like, veg out and watch, I... like, 30 Rock. <laughs> it is, like, I totally get, like, being with someone who's on your level but, like, sometimes I feel like you have to, like, level it down a bit. You know, like, I, that's just – and that's just me talking. Like, I don't sounds, think they ever leveled down. It sounds exhausting. So exhausting. And, like, some of the pictures of them are super cute. Like, they're, like, out having picnics or they're, like, in Maine hanging out and, like, just doing things. But it's, like, you know they were sitting up drinking, talking about philosophy all night. That's all they did. So – together they found the national organization for an american revolution jimmy starts using the phrase black power before anybody has started saying black power wow they are just at the forefront of everything (laughs) they are and he even writes a book using this phrase and it's called american revolution pages from a negro's workers notebook he foreshadowed in this book the economic problems the U.S. was going to have. What? He says in the book, okay, all these people are coming back from war and we're building these huge factories and making all this new technology. But what's going to happen to cities like Detroit, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, when these wow, large... Just calling us out like yeah, that. Why are you calling us out? <laughs> <laughs> these large groups of men get laid off because they're replaced by machines. Oh they're going to turn into like crime hubs. Oh, my God. He, like, called it out, like, decades before it's going to happen. He calls it out. He's like, we need to fix this problem right now. This is just, like, I watched an interview recently with David Bowie where it was, like, in, like, the 80s. And someone was like, da-da-da-da, like, the internet. And he goes, you don't even know what the internet's going to be. And he was like, no, it's just a tool. Like, it's a tool. Like, a wrench is a tool. And David Bowie was like... This is something that once it's unleashed, it will have an insane impact on the world. Like AI, baby. He was like, things will never be the same yeah. now that the internet is here. And yeah. the guy was, the guy literally couldn't comprehend it right. because he was like, no, like it's just, again, like it's not, that's not the way it is. And David Bowie was like, watch, watch the internet will destroy the earth. And that's like, <laughs> it's like what great minds are like Jimmy's like you, you I understand that how quick technology is progressing and this is going to like outsource the work like he was just so on it she's also writing books at this time and they're just becoming wide widely known as activists in detroit the two of them as a couple i'm sorry his name is james boggs yeah i've just never heard of him and i know i feel like he is a very important person <laughs> yeah he really is like i've never heard of either of them i I'm know like, what it's, it's really crazy so grace gets really excited because the, the montgomery bus boycotts happen and she's like this is it yeah this is the revolution that we've been talking about it's gonna happen so she splits with the marxist party all together and is like i'm all in on civil rights and she's been interviewed on television and on the radio and national news because it's easier to interview a small cute 
Asian woman as opposed to what could be seen as an aggressive black oh, yeah. person, right? So it's just the racism is just piling on. I it must be so difficult to like have to make that decision and like have to like tell your husband like yeah. people are afraid of you because of this racist system that we are trying to dismantle. So like we're gonna have to make a decision to like send right. me out on the front lines because like I'm less of a threat in people's and he minds. also like has that's so that, fucked up he has that very thick southern alabama accent mm-hmm. where like y- when you speak people are going to automatically assume you're better than them but this man's mind is incredible and it's like such a tragedy that people just were not listening yeah so in one of these interviews where she is talking about the importance of the civil rights movement and about the um the reach of the black community. One of the interviewers says one might say that for a black man to reach middle-class life as a white man, that is a revolution. And she was like, are you, are you fucking kidding me? Like what? I don't understand. You think that like, if we have half as much as you, that's like as good as it gets. I, I just, she's just like blown away. <laughs> she, like you can hear her. St- I, I've never heard her stammer, but she was like, uh, oh, <laughs> like, I don't know. Well, what to- that's exactly what it is because yeah. their definition of equality is, <laughs> is minorities always having less because right. that feels equal it feels to people in power because yeah, right. you're right. It feels comfortable. It's like, well, you can't have everything. And it's like, <laughs> you have everything and you're okay with it. Like, Like, why not? Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's seen as so, um, like greedy. And I think that's the unfortunate image that I Uh feel like people have of like, Oh, like you're so greedy. Like, why can't you just be happy with what you have? (laughs) Be happy with the hand you've been dealt. Yeah. Like you're so lucky you're in America. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Calm down. (sighs) Um, so in Detroit, she and James organized them. MLK March. Um, in general, she was a Malcolm X girl through and through, but y- you know, she was still there for the civil rights movement. Yeah. So she helps organize it. The big March happens in Detroit. MLK gives a speech. I mean, she even hosted Malcolm, Malcolm X at her house. Oh like he God. came over, whatever. She really did think though, at the time that Martin Luther King was naive. She kept thinking, how can you ask us to forgive the people who are destroying our lives and killing us? Like, I don't, understand it she has since changed her opinion but at the time she was just like no i'm i'm down for malcolm but things changed as detroit changed she helped to launch the black freedom now organization which is a grassroots organization and she said i know it sounds like we're calling for violence but we feel like violence is happening to us and You know, to their group, the term black power was not meant to be dangerous. It was meant to be encouraging, but it was definitely threatening to the patriarchy. Well, and like, I know I've like heard people say this and and be like, oh, it's just like so aggressive, like black power. Like, what if we said white power? And it's like, we don't have to because white power is assumed. Yeah. And I think people do say that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> Let's be clear. People do say that. But um, And we said Black Lives Matter, and you thought that was aggressive. Exactly. So like, that's not aggressive like, at all. We're literally just saying, like, no, they matter in general. Like, <laughs> I love when people talk about that. We thought it was, like, the calmest thing you could say. Was people, that, like, people are like we ma- just matter. Matters the minimum. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's small. We the minimum. And you're like, no. <laughs> How dare you? Outrageous. I matter. Me too. It's <laughs> like, calm down, everybody. So here's what happens around America. Okay. Freeways are built. So white people don't have to live in cities anymore to keep their jobs. So they move to suburbs and drive to the city for work. So now cities become the the place of black people, mm-hmm. except it's run by white politicians and white police forces, mm-hmm. which seems like a white man army occupation of a black neighborhood and it's just terrifying so because the black power movement has started aggression from police also begins and in 1967 there's a raid of a black nightclub and in detroit it sparked a five-day violent uprising that left 43 people dead oh my gosh this was a big turning point for grace she was forced to think about what does rebellion actually mean and realize that we weren't organized correctly because the first couple of days there's camaraderie and we're together, but then there's looting and nobody trusts anybody and the city's falling apart. And she was actually one of six people who was allegedly responsible for a bomb explosion during this riot. She's like, I wasn't even near there, but I had to start thinking and I had to blame myself. If I had not done that active antagonizing that I did before the rebellion, it would not have taken the shape it did. Mm. Unfortunately, our president doesn't say things like that when he, or our previous president doesn't say things like that when he messes up and gets people to like rile up. But she was like very open to be like, I think she was being too hard on herself, honestly. She was speaking openly about what she thought was wrong and saying there needs to be a rebellion. And I mean, the city went to shit for a couple. It was bad yeah. for several days. And from then on, her and Jimmy, every summer, went to Maine. And they would work through emotions and ideas. And they would talk this out. And she can still... she She's still trying to talk out how she could have fixed the situation. Like, every year of her life, how could I have changed this? How could these 40-some people not have died? Um... And she says ideas really matter because when you take a position, you need to take time to examine what the future impact is going to be. And I just feel for her. I do too, because I think regret is one of the most unfortunate, I don't know, aspects of being a human because you just play those moments over and over again in your head and there's just so much guilt involved and even if like you know again it's not something even directly related to you but like you felt like you could have done something different like even just like I know like simple phone calls I have like I could have said this or that and it would have been different like you know really small things and that's a big thing like 43 lives like that's a big thing yeah and like buildings burnt to the ground yeah and I just wish that like and this is not like no pun intended, but I wish she would show herself some grace right. and just be like, you know what? I know that like, you know, it's difficult to eat this, but like sometimes like, I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, but I hear it. It's like sometimes like 
the, the, it wasn't just her. Like, she, yeah. didn't, she didn't run Detroit. Yeah. Like, I know she was in the heart of the movement, but she wasn't out there, like, killing people and blowing stuff up. Like, there were there were mayors there. There were police officers there. There were people who were supposed to be helping you. Like, Right, and that's also the problem is, like, you feel so strong. Like, as we know that, like, police forces are not – I mean, they're supposed to be there to help, and they just don't, you know? I mean – we're seeing this so much right now when we know like communities of color have been seeing this for years right. of like, I don't feel safe around the people that are literally paid to, to protect, protect me. me. And like, instead I feel like they're being paid to like hunt me. And, and like, the most disgusting horrible. thing is we needed video cameras for proof. Yeah. Like we wouldn't even fucking listen to people telling no. us the truth. It's just, I, and myself included. Like, and even when we have videos, it doesn't do anything. Right. Like I know we have actual video like, you know, so I've heard, I've seen a lot of people posting because, like, we're in the midst of the Chauvin trial. And it's yeah. like, how outrageous is it that we're having a trial for a murder that the entire country has seen? Right. And we've all seen we've it. We've all seen we've it. We've all seen like, it. Like, yeah. And, but it is hard when, like, you get into the minutia of, like, Grace is feeling it all on her shoulders. Right. And, like, that is it's so much to bear but she doesn't take it and like turn away from it which i'm really happy about yeah. so grace was not just like a chinese american inside of the african american movement james was also on her team and together they found the asian political alliance and they organized vietnam war protests like they don't quit they go mm -hmm. into the 70s strong and try to focus on issues around asian marginalization as well as black marginalization mm -hmm. she um thinks now believes after the 1960s that what we need is a larger evolution mm -hmm. of change because she's like, listen, I've, I've seen, I was there when we had the first black mayor, the first black governor, the first black Senator, the first black president. And you know what? They're getting there and working inside the system we've already built. Right. It's not enough. So she is very, she's a philosopher. She's very, very like, thought provoking mm -hmm. but also not always practical in like the yeah. way it can be done mm -hmm. so she is given this platform and she's trying to figure out what to do so in the 1990s her and james found like detroit summer programs and multicultural like intergenerational youth programs in detroit James does pass away in 1993 out of 40 after 40 years of marriage. Mm. And, you know, she just keeps chugging along her home in Detroit served as headquarters for the bog center for nurture and community leadership. And it, even after her passing, her home is still the hub of grassroots organizing. Like wow. they still use that building in 1998, her autobiography living for change was published. And at 85 years old, a young Asian American woman by the same name, Grace Lee, started a documentary about all of the Asian women named Grace Lee because she thought really? it was really interesting. So she starts this documentary and then meets this woman that she's never heard of. And is like, wow. <laughs> ah! This lady is insane. Yeah. And then hangs with her on and off for about 10 years. Oh my gosh. Making a new documentary about 
Grace Lee Boggs <gasps> and her life, which is the one that I watched. And it's so cool. It came out in 2013. And she said when Grace was 85 years old, we couldn't keep up with her. She was a part <laughs> of every community organization. Like, everywhere. She's like, my team was going crazy. Grace said, I don't know why people are so interested in me right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I used to be so much cooler. And like, yeah. there's, there's t-shirts and shit that people wear in Detroit with her face on it. It's a very RBG oh situation for her. And she was like, come on. Like, uh, whatever and this younger grace lee is like no you challenge everyone about everything no matter what they say she just fights with everybody she is like she'll be like at a cashier like at the store and be like this is racist this thing i hate it <laughs> and she's just like so upfront about it in 2015 um the new school university center was named baldwin riviera bog center for james baldwin Sylvia Riviera and Grace Lee Boggs. And she continued to write for the Michigan Citizen newspaper and books about her life into her 90s. Grace turned 100 years old on June of 2015. Oh my God. And then passed in October of that same year at 100. In 2016, a year later, a duo biography was published about the love and struggle of James and Grace called mm. The Revolutionary Lives of James and Grace Lee Boggs. That, again, they had been married for 40 years and for none of it had fun. <laughs> <laughs> Not one vacation was held. They had no fun in Maine. <laughs> she often examined her role as an Asian American in society and how it worked along with the black power movement and the fight for civil liberties for people of color. And I think this is a lesson in solidarity without virtue signaling. Oh my gosh. That's right? exactly what, that's exactly it. Because I was thinking like, I feel like we're having this moment now with the stop Asian hate movement yeah. coming into contact with the BLM movement. And it's like, yeah, we can work together because we want to just stop discrimination. Right. Like, <laughs> and it's like the we're, BLM movement came on the heels of the Me Too movement. And it's like, yes, yes, yes. All these things. Right. <laughs> it's like they can all coexist at the same time. And like, I just, I think it's amazing that they were setting such an example to like how people want to be now of mm -hmm. like, we have separate but like similar causes and like we're experiencing racism but a little differently and like I'm experiencing I'm experiencing sexism and you're not and like let's examine these as a couple and like how can we tackle this system as a whole because right. the system would love to tell every marginal I mean they do tell every marginalized groups you should be fighting with each other and not with us. Right. Which is what we used to do. Yeah. And I feel like that's the whole thing is like we need to shift our perspective mm -hmm. and be like, okay, we need to tackle the system and not each other. And I feel like they were just doing that very difficult work so so, so early. early. It used to be like, no, my cause not yours. And now it's yeah. like all of our causes against yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. It's very nice. Because I feel like it kind of took this turn of like people are like, huh. BLM, what are you going to do about this Asian stuff? And they're like, we're going to back it. Like, what the fuck are you like, talking about? Stop killing Asian like, people. Like, that's Yeah, we ridiculous. don't like that either. I, I like, we it. don't like any of it. Like, <laughs> Please don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> stop. Um, so, obviously, her beliefs changed over time. But she said that the long game is, is the vital 
purpose here and that's still the purpose is long game she said i was asked often what keeps me going after all these years and i think it's the realization that there is no final struggle whether you win Mm. or lose each struggle brings forth new contradictions new and more challenging questions and the most important thing that grace ever chose to say i think is you don't choose the times you live in, but you choose who you want to be and you choose how you want to think. And that's Grace Lee Boggs. Wow. A hundred years of just straightforward activism. I'm blown away. I've never heard of her. Crazy, right? And in I Detroit, she's like a hero. Insane. I know. I don't know. Also, like, I feel like Detroit gets such a bad rap. And it's like... <laughs> oh, you. there's... In the documentary, there's, um like images of her walking down the street like with her walker and she's like looking at these huge factories and she's just going this is what james they're empty there's fences around them there's graffiti all over them and she's like this is what jimmy was saying oh like my God. this was gonna happen we keep building buildings and not society and i'm like oh my god you're 92 and smarter than me and crazier than me and i love it i want to be as angry as her i'm not that angry and i want to be yeah you know, I was um I listened to uh this American Life episode, I think it was about like seeing the future. And like it people were like, Oh, I would love to see the future. I'm like, it is such a curse. Like they were talking to this woman who she can smell diseases on people and she's not legally allowed to tell them. So she's like, I meet a person and I know that they have Alzheimer's, but they don't know it yet. Oh and, my god. And she was like and I imagine that's how Jimmy felt of like, I know what's going to happen. And I'm telling no you way that like, no one's going to listen to me can, and he can tell people and like, you know, and it's like, like Greta Thornburg. She's yeah. Like, Greta Thunberg is like, look at what's happening. And like, yeah. And it just, it must suck being the person who can live in the present and see the future at the same time. And you're trying to help and just no one will listen to you. Mm. So let's get into more of that with my next story. <laughs> Can't wait for it's another drink. Let's great. get more, more, more into this. All right. Yeah, we'll get more okay. into this. All right. We'll, we'll see you in a minute. <laughs> this is Stephanie. And Tux. <laughs> From the podcast Beyond Reproach, a show about political scandals from American history, but it's fun, we swear. The idea behind our show is that politicians and government officials are meant to be public servants, and their behavior should be beyond reproach, but if history has taught us anything, it's that a lot of politicians are total scumbags. So we decided to do a show where we drink period-appropriate historic cocktails while exploring some of the government scandals and shitty politicians of America's past. We are not historians. We're just a couple of drunks who never shut up and love history. We hope you'll join us on Beyond Reproach for some big facts, good laughs, a little bit of swearing, a lot of drinking, and a real good time. America's history is juicy. We just add gin. We're back. We're back with new cocktails, a new story. I'm feeling pretty drunk. Me too. And it's going to be great. Okay. (laughs) As long as we're all in this together. We're on the same page. Good. Okay. Do you want to know what you're about to drink? I do. It looks really good. So it's got like the dark um, color of like a whiskey bourbon drink, but it also has, 
I know you put SoCo in it, and it also has like a nice sugary rim. So it kind of looks like a Thanksgiving drink, except the orange. So I'm thrown. Yes. I'm thrown. I don't know what it's going <laughs> to taste like. Okay. So this is called the Dear Doctor. Um, it is two ounces of sweet tea, two ounces of Southern Comfort, a half an ounce of elderflower liqueur, literally just because her last name is Elders. <laughs> <laughs> orange bitters and you garnish it with um some um like a slice of orange and you rim the glass with instant iced tea <laughs> this is like your tang so cheers it really is oh it is good it's really good actually wow. <laughs> and you know what wow. i do mm, okay the iced tea garnish is actually incredible. It is really, it's so sugary. And then it mixes with the liquid yeah. and creates iced tea in your mouth. Also, I was a little on the fence about the elderflower, but I actually think that it makes it taste different than just like a, you know, like a tea right. whiskey drink. Right, right, I, right. I think that it adds a little bit of floralness that I really like. So I have a really personal question for okay. you. <laughs> How many different kinds of bitters do you have? Okay. I have orange Angostura and, um, I have three and the other one is escaping me. I have three different types of bitters and I want more because I love every time I look up a recipe and it's like, you need this wild bitter, like this crazy name. I have hopped grapefruit bitters. I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you a bitter collection. Allie, I would love nothing more because I think that there's such a fun flair. They are actually almost bought chocolate bitters for this because I always see them. I'm like, I should buy them. They're like $15. Miss Krista, how many bitters do you have? How many bitters? do you have um yeah because i yeah the the hopped grapefruit ones were really when i started going off the rails yeah. because i was like this is so niche and like <laughs> i can't i but can't yeah, with i it. i just i love a bitter i think they're just fun so anyways <laughs> um pretty good cocktail we're on a roll we are four for four this season <laughs> um but ali what do you know about Vice Admiral Dr. Jocelyn Elder's Professor Emeritus. <laughs> I mean, girl, I don't. I know she was in the military, and only because of a conversation we had earlier, I know she was the Surgeon General, mm-hmm. which I literally only know what that is because of the side of cigarettes. Surgeon yep. General's warning, which mm-hmm. I imagine means you're the head doctor of the country but then i also think that's dr fauci and is he the surgeon general or he's a covid he's no head of the cdc he's head of the cdc okay i don't know what that is i don't know it's kind of like a comptroller i don't know what that is but i know it's important yes so can you tell me about her life so that I can <laughs> right. learn something? You know what? I will. Good. Um, I, Have you prepared for that? <laughs> I got most of this from the Sawbones podcast and an Arkansas public uh, TV program called Men and Women of Distinction. Okay. So from Arkansas. Yeah. She's from Arkansas. Okay. Okay. Let's do it. Dr. Elders was born Minnie Lee Jones on August 13th, 1933 in Shaw, Arkansas to a family of poor sharecroppers. She was the oldest of eight children. 
and grew up in what she called a three-room shack with no electricity and no running water. Can't. I can't. I'm already I done. Can't. She said that they were indeed very poor, but thankfully the one thing that they never went without was food because they produced all of their own food and they raised livestock and chickens, whatever. You know, like they were pretty self-sustainable. But it also meant that from a really young age, she was working so hard to provide for herself and her family. She also worked really long hours, especially in the summer. She would spend a lot of time picking cotton and doing all sorts of like just hard Southern manual labor. Her father is always just simply referred to as a man of few words. (laughs) And her mother is referred to as the spiritual leader of the family who had one big goal in life. She wanted all of her children to be well-educated. They would be well-educated in school and at home. And when Jocelyn was four years old, she started learning the basics of reading and math from her mother. And then no matter how much they needed the extra hands during the school year, they were all sent off to the local one-room colored schoolhouse, which was like 13 miles away. How'd they get there? I don't know. (laughs) I hope they slept there all week. Also, they stayed nearby with a friend or something. I will say, I heard the number 13 somewhere, but I didn't remember where. So if I'm wrong about that 13 miles, I couldn't refine it. So close enough. But it was far away. <laughs> it was uphill both ways, in the snow, in Arkansas, in bare feet. Exactly. It was really hard. Jocelyn always excelled in school, and early in life, she knew exactly what she wanted to be when she grew up. A store clerk. What? <laughs> dream big, girl. This what? was her dream. What? That's really cute. Because it was the highest position she had ever seen occupied by a black woman. It was also a job that took place inside. And she said, it was amazing. I just thought they must love their job because it took place out of the sun and they have a fan blowing right on them. Like the literal lap of luxury. Okay, ready? I'm ready. Side representation. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So she's growing up thinking that she's going to be a store clerk and like that's the end of this, you know, that's the end of the story. But soon it was the height of World War II, and Jocelyn's father learned that there was work to be had out in California. So when she was in elementary school, I think like she was in like fourth grade, they went out to Richmond, California. Are they going to be like on the orange sharecrop no. farms? No, okay. he's like building like military equipment. Oh, super yeah, cool. Yeah. Super cool. Um, so they went to Richmond, California, and Jocelyn was shocked. When she went to school, she was like, this building is so tall and it has so many rooms. It was a four-story high building. And she was like, what the fuck is this? And it was also a predominantly white school, which she also had no, like, experience Yeah, in. that's how I felt when I went to college. Yeah. I was like, this is really tall and there's a lot of white kids. Yeah. <laughs> and another thing happened that really threw her at this time. When she was given the placement exam, she did so well that she skipped two grades and went straight into the eighth grade. Girl just got to like fucking skip middle school. I mean, what a dream. <laughs> I mean, I'm blown away by the just innate intelligence of some people. It's unbelievable. I'm so jealous of it. I don't get it. <laughs> like, I I mean, I have my doctorate and I'm dumb as fuck. <laughs> like, I, like, literally, I can't spell 
available. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like these girls are just like, well, I'm 16 and I got a full scholarship to the world. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fine. Be smart as fuck. And really what this taught her was that she could compete and excel among white students. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like she was like, Oh, I was just always kind of like under the impression, like they were better. And like, that was it. And she was like, Oh my God, I'm smarter than all of them. This is amazing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and now she had something to look forward to than just being a store clerk. Not that that's like a bad thing, but like, you know, obviously she is like, Oh my gosh, I thought that was like the highest I could ever go. <laughs> Um, so two years later, the family moved back to Arkansas and she had a clear goal in mind. She was like, I want to go to college and I want to study biology. And in 1949, she graduated high school at the age of 15 and was the valedictorian of her class. And she said literally at her graduation, she was approached by representatives of the Philander Smith College, which is in Little Rock, Arkansas, and they offered her a scholarship. And of course, she accepted gladly but she wasn't sure if it was really going to happen number one she wasn't sure if her dad was going to let her go he always needed help on the farm and it seemed like he thought that high school was going to be the end of this whole education thing (laughs) he's like that's your mom's thing like this is really important to her and like now that you're finally big enough to like my employee labor he's like you're gonna leave me (laughs) but her grandma, Minnie, was not having that. And she told Joycelyn, so that, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but like her name, it, like she changes her name later to Joycelyn. So like even though her birth name is Minnie, like we're just going to call but her But wait, Joycelyn. she was named after her grandmother? Yeah, she's named after her grandmother. And then she's like, I'm going to change And then she changed it. her name. I don't know exactly when, but she just changed her name. So grandma Minnie was like, Joycelyn, don't let anyone tell you what to do and don't let anyone stop you especially when you have an opportunity like this so grandma Minnie went to her father and was like this girl is going to college and I won't hear any more about it listen if you're a mom and you are still like telling your son what to do I'm here for it but then there was one more barrier she had to get to Little Rock to go to school and the bus out there cost three dollars and 46 cents and she just didn't have that kind of money no one in her family did but her siblings knew that this was important so her siblings banded together and worked overtime picking cotton i mean like crazy hours from like sun up past sundown the youngest one was five years old at the time wait does she have to get there once or daily just once okay and they did this until they earned the money to send her off to school. Yeah. Piggy her bank siblings up. Friends. together. And after this, she was so grateful to her siblings. She's like, I literally wouldn't have been able to go if it wasn't for them. And she. Well, you can walk. It's <laughs> a little rock. I don't know. Arkansas is pretty big, I think. And there's a lot of mountains. <laughs> Arkansas looks like me neither no, I, I like can't it, even tell you the shape it. I'm okay, gonna draw it draw it's, it. it's a pentagon like this and oh, Louisiana's so? right below it oh. and it's a boot like that and then this is like Mississippi and this is Alabama okay let's see how right that <laughs> take a picture of it bitch this is where Clinton's from <laughs> wow you know what you're right on the money wow that's upsetting <laughs> get out of here bom, bom, wow bom. <laughs> I think there's a little hit, hit, hitch down here, though. There is. 
Wow. <laughs> you know your states. Listen, um, I can't spell available. <laughs> I know geography. Sometimes. I'm upset about how accurate that is. <laughs> and I won't show you the picture. Um, so <laughs> Shit, now I have to look it up. So <laughs> she had to get there and her siblings did it for her. And she made it her life's mission to one day be successful enough to help the rest of her siblings get to college. And thankfully, she fucking did. <gasps> follow through in 1952 she graduates from philander smith college with a degree in biology and she marries a man named cornelius reynolds whom she met at school great first name soon they moved to milwaukee wisconsin he got a job at the irs she got a job as a nurse's aide in a veteran's so hospital. he sold his soul mm-hmm. <laughs> but she knew that what she really wanted to do was go to medical school and become a doctor my god so she's like you know what Best way to do this for a person like me is to enlist in the military so I can continue my education. So she (laughs) goes into the military and this did not please her husband. He was like, you're just going to go off and join the fucking army. What is wrong with you? You're supposed to be here having my kids. And she was like, excuse me, (laughs) excuse me. So she ended up with a new career and life path. But without a husband. Wow. <laughs> Which divorce? is like, fine. Good. Ri- yeah, she divorced him. It's <gasps> like, good riddance. If you can't handle a strong ass military wife, like, get the fuck out of here. I have my degree. I'm going to the military and I'm also going to be a divorcee. That's the triple D. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she served in the army for three years, training as a physical therapist, and then went on to medical school at home at the University of Arkansas Medical School. And when she entered medical school, medical school in 1956, she was one of three black students and one of three women. Wow. <laughs> but she absolutely thrived there. She was so smart. And she just felt like medical school was the first thing that really challenged her at the level that she wanted it to. Like everything else was just such a breeze for her. It's like when you're lifting weights with a 15, but it should be a 20. Exactly. I hear it. So she's doing all this and she can't decide between surgery and pediatrics. Classic dilemma. <laughs> Don't but go she... pediatrics. Go surgery. Go surgery. Go surgery. Oh, she goes pediatrics. <laughs> And her life takes a turn when she is sent on a pretty typical assignment for school. It's like when you're a pediatric person, you do physicals. (laughs) So one of the things... Does she get physical? (laughs) She does get physical. So one of the things they usually had medical students do was they go and observe the school athletes and give them their physicals they needed to play. Uh 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 You know, it's like they need physicals to like make sure they're okay and the students need to practice doing them kind of a win-win but they weren't used to female medical students so joycelyn went over to the gym to give the men's basketball team their physicals and she was like hey i'm here to inspect the team and they didn't want to let her in the guy at the door was like uh coach there is like a lady here saying she needs to inspect the guys like no way this is happening this is so inappropriate calm down (laughs) Like, I, men I have not been expecting... I know. <laughs> and she was like, well, do you want your players to be cleared for playing? You better step aside then. So the coach was like, okay, well, I don't want the players to feel uncomfortable. So he was like, let me go first to set the example. And as Dr. Elders likes to say, and I've been examining his body ever since because her and the basketball coach, Oliver Elders, fell in love. No! And they got married 
four months after they met. Look out, boys, I'm coming through. I don't know what song that is from Tiana. <laughs> um, isn't that the best story ever? I love it. It's and I love because like we'll also get doctors it. don't fall she's in love like, with their patients on a so, regular basis, but whatever. She's so pro sex that she's like, yeah, and I've been examining that body ever since. I just fucking love it. It's like, yes, you have. <laughs> good, good. She's the best. Okay. So wait, so she gets in, and mm-hmm. this is the coach. This is the coach. The, of the coach is like, team. I'll go first. I'm gonna set a good example. A, what a good guy. Um, and then like, B. If he's hot, he's hot. Like, mm-hmm. as long as you're not taking advantage of a patient and he was like, I'm into my girl, then you're fine. Hotty, hot, hot. I love it. So is, wait, is this an interracial couple? No, or, no, no. Or they're is both he black. a black coach? Okay. Yep, they're both black. I assumed a position of power that he was I white. <laughs> um, so that's my own problems I have to grapple with later when I listen back to this, but that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> But since this was at the end of her time at medical school, they weren't married for long before she had to leave him to go do her pediatric internship all the way in Minnesota. But marrying a doctor is rough as shit. But unlike husband number one, he was like, oh, yeah, I totally understand. Like, your career is really important to you. And their relationship is totally fine. (laughs) And that's the happy ending we all want. So she finished up her internship. (laughs) You mean Prince Charming said (laughs) go and be you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so she finished up her internship and then she returned to Arkansas a year later to finish up her residency. And in her second year of residency, she gave birth to her first child, a little boy named Eric. Um, and by the K or with a C, I always write it with a K because I was in love with a boy named Eric with a K, but I know it was probably with a C. My brother's um, name is spelled with a C. So. I know. So we spell have it with a K. It's fine. Personal feelings <laughs> about it. I have zero feelings about it. Actually, you can do what you want. <laughs> But literally, she's, like, doing her residency, having a baby, and she becomes the chief resident that same year. She worked 365 days a year and was in charge of every single pediatric admittant. But after a few years, this started to wear on her, and she was encouraged by her medical mentor to go into pediatric research. He was like, I think that you would be really good at it because you are so smart and you see things in such a different way that like I think that you could really be thinking forward and like not just like what are we doing now but what can we be doing in the future I want to point out that Katie licked her hand mid sentence <laughs> <laughs> it's because I graced my glass with my hand there was so much iced tea and I got sugar. iced tea sugar on my hand and I had to have it <laughs> I've never seen such a seamless moment <laughs> Don't we wish we had cameras? Um, uh, no, I really let's don't. Let's make this a show. I Well, <laughs> I'm going to have to start wearing makeup, Kate, Catherine. I almost called you Caitlin. That's not your name. Nope. Wow. Definitely not. Wowza. <laughs> so, and this guy also said, he was like, I also think if you went into research, you could have a better, like, work-life balance. Because, like, you know, she's bunch. She's like, I have a baby. And I'm like, not there. Like, Literally, every girl. working mom's, like... And I wouldn't say every, but like, you know, so many working moms thing of like, I feel like I'm not being there, you know, and it fucking sucks because there's yeah. a double standard. Anyways, so it's an everything standard. It's I was real everything. Pe- so I was real. Pe- so 
producer got his degree in biology and then was going to go to med school. And I was like, right, you could do that and leave me for the next 35 years trying to get your place in the world. Or you could go into medical research and look how that worked out. Great. Worked out really it well. worked out really well <laughs> because some people are selfish with their time and I'm one of them. And that's exactly what you should be. I know. And that's what <laughs> she's doing. It is. So she was like, yeah, I think you're right. So she gets a master's in biochemistry <laughs> and she becomes a pediatric endocrinologist. And she soon became one of the leading experts in her field and was constantly being published in medical journals. Now, you might have the same question I did. What the heck is a pediatric endocrinologist? Well, in Wait, short, I feel like the... Okay. Okay. Let Pedi- me know what you think. Pediatric is baby. Yep. Mm-hmm. Baby babies. Endocrinologist. No idea. They're looking inside mm-hmm. a sure, mom inside. at a baby. No. Or, or inside a baby. Well, inside a kid. Well, that's pediatric. Yeah, yeah, kid. When I say baby, I mean (laughs) anything below 18. Inside a baby. I have no idea what she does. What does she do? Okay. One short. (laughs) She studies the endocrine glands in children, which are the systems mostly associated with hormones and growth. Like, I read one thing that was like, anything that's like giving out shit, like liquids and stuff, like that's the endocrine system. I was like, wow, that sounds disgusting. But... I don't like that. I don't like it either. I don't like what you just said. Um, it's associated with thyroid issues, diabetes, and, okay. you know, like, you know, puberty, all that shit. <laughs> diabetes I, and puberty. The everything same. that everyone wants to ignore, that's endocrinology. Got it. Got it. <laughs> and she was so fucking good at this that people would send their kids to her from, like, all over. And... She was, as we like to say, the leading specialist in her field. But it was during one of these cases when she started to feel that she had another calling. So a 13-year-old girl was sent to her from up in the Ozark Mountains, which are in Arkansas. There's this mountainous range. We all know it because of Jason Bateman. Because this girl was having a problem with her thyroid. Dr. Elders got it all fixed up. But the girl... As soon as she was told, like, you're clear to go home, she started, like, flipping out. And she was like, I don't want to go. And Joycelyn soon discovered that it was because her father's, her father and her uncles had been routinely sexually assaulting her. So she didn't want to go home. And it was to the point where she was, like, every Saturday night. Like, it was, like, like clockwork. And she was like, I don't want to go home. She tried, Joycelyn tried to help her, but at this time there was like not much that she could legally do because she was like, I'm just like a random doctor, you know? And like, I don't have any rights. She doesn't have any rights and she couldn't do anything. And she said that the next time she saw her, she was pregnant and she was just so devastated because she was just like, I just I want to do something I need to fight sexual abuse and teen pregnancy how can I do both at once like how can we protect young people from this bullshit like this is horrible this shouldn't happen to fucking anyone and she figured her her best bet would to would be to try her very best to better the sexual education system in America she's like you know she's like such a humble person that she's like I don't know much but I know that like if we 
make kids more aware of like just sexuality in general and give them better education than like, you know, it's not going to stop all abuse, but like maybe they can have like the language and the rights because again, like if you educate the next generation that they can make laws that protect people from you know what i'm saying like you she mean, like was good like, sex education like real actual good sex education yeah, and from was, a doctor yeah and she's like and we need to put people in charge who actually care about these fucking kids so she worked on small projects when she could but other than like publishing papers and researching the topic there wasn't much that she could do at an infrastructure level until about 20 years later in 1987 when the governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton, made her the director of the Arkansas Department of Public Health. Why did we? Okay, we had this conversation during the Madeleine Albright episode. Why is this pretty terrible man so good at identifying strong women? Why? Allie, I literally couldn't tell you because it's infuriating. <laughs> it is. It's so, it's so infuriating. He is surrounded by, okay, so if anybody didn't listen to the Madeleine Albright episode, he not only is obviously married to Hillary Rodham, but he appointed RBG. He appointed Madeleine Albright. He is now, like, connected with this woman that we're covering and then is also sexually harassing and assaulting people. Like, I know it's directly contradictory I and it's so infuriating. I cannot fathom. He's like literally like, I can't fathom Bill Clinton. I can't. I feel, I don't know if it's like a thing of like, I am the problem. So I'm going to put women around me or we're trying to fix the problem of me. I don't think he has that much humility, but like, I don't know. Uh, he might, uh, he might, uh, he I'm might. Like, I'm kind of confused about He's it. He's like, I shouldn't exist. <laughs> No, not saying he shouldn't exist. That's a terrible thing to say. He's thinking like, like, I'm an an anomaly. I'm the problem. Like, let me fix this. We're giving him a lot of credit that he (laughs) definitely doesn't deserve. That's true. But we're hoping. We're hoping. Uh, During my promo, remind me to talk about the knuckles. Okay. 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 I need to be. Okay. Okay. Um, so this made her the first African-American woman in the state to hold this position, which is really exciting. And in just the state or like, I mean, just the state, I think it seems like there's not a lot of African-American women who get even to like a doctorhood. It seems like really exclusive. Oh, yeah. And we'll get into that later. Okay. Okay. And one other thing that made her stand out in the state health department was the fact that she was born and raised in the poor rural areas of Arkansas. People are going to listen. So she knew exactly what a lot of the children in Arkansas were struggling with. And in fact, one of her coworkers said that he was so glad that she was there because he knew that she was one of the few people who they didn't have to educate on poverty because that's something that they were having to do of like, there are poor children here and like you know many people who were and are doctors never came from struggle like that so they literally can't comprehend it and i'm not saying that they can't learn about it but they can't truly understand what it's like to be her and having to have you and your seven siblings pick cotton from sun up to sundown just so you can earn three dollars and 46 cents Yo, this statement's going to be really controversial but that's the fucking problem with teach across america you cannot take kids from ivy league colleges and put them in the poorest communities in america because they don't know what the fuck they're talking about i agree sorry excuse me yeah <laughs> you're a good organization well, i appreciate because you because it but is stop. like 
who is benefiting because I feel like who walks away being like, I'm a changed person is this kid who was already privileged. And like, I do think that like educating privileged people are as important, but it's also they like, were, well, the goal, they were like, well, the goal should be, we should get the most educated people into jobs that people don't want. And it's like, no, no, no. There's really passionate people who want to work in inner cities and you're not fucking one of yeah. them. So back the fuck down. Yeah. Okay. That okay. was a personal vendetta. I had to grievance. <laughs> okay. Um, and she knew this poverty well. And she knew that one thing that often keeps women in poverty is teen pregnancy and a lack of sexual education. And she made it her first priority. And people, of course, were like, um, that's what we've been doing. Hello. Have you heard of the Bible? (laughs) Why would you teach this filth of condoms and birth control when we have the best possible solution which is abstinence we mean i'm gonna i'm about to fight and she was like well you've been teaching abstinence for years and we still have a fucking problem no i'm talking about access to contraception proper sexual education and counseling centers in schools where kids can have access to contraceptions and sex education and also just someone to fucking talk to that isn't their parent or teacher that is just someone outside of their circle that they can go to without judgment and be like i'm sexually active and like i need to know how to protect myself like tell me what to do yeah and i love it because there is one i was watching like uh, one of the documentaries included clips of these like town hall meetings and this pastor stood up and he was like he said exactly what I said. Like we have the best education there is like abstinence only it's in the Bible. And she was like, I don't know if it is. Um, but he, no, I'm pretty sure they all had fucking concubines. They were and killing everyone. she was like, well, we've been trying that and it hasn't been working. So why don't we just try my method? And I mean, the number one person that I told I was sexually assaulted was a school counselor. Because they're that outside what, your circle. They're outside any circle. They don't have any impact on your daily life, on your grades. They have to be your, quiet about it. And they have to. Be, yeah, exactly. They're just like, they're literally there to be like anything that you feel like you cannot say to other people. Like, I want you to feel like you can say to me. And that is why I want to give a shout out to my friend Caitlin because she got her master's in school counseling and she got her first job in school counseling and I just couldn't think of a better person to do it. And I love her so much. A dream. I mean, these people, because, they're so great because also school counselors deal with teachers coming in and bitching. Yeah. That's something you don't think about a lot. I did not think about people that. view them as like their personal, like grievance point. So like, also I was having a really bad time about two years ago in my life. And a school counselor specifically came to my classroom and was like, I've noticed that you've been really struggling. and I would like to talk to you about it. And like <sighs> shut my classroom door and came in free counseling sessions. When you're a teacher free dude, you have educated people in your building ready to help you. Unbelievable. What could be better? It couldn't, it couldn't be better. It's unbelievable. Okay. So, so she's being unbelievable. So she's being unbelievable. And she even goes as far as saying that, Providing solely abstinence-only education is a form of child abuse. For Wait, sure. Absolutely it is. And she didn't try to, like, sneak anything in. She was so vocal about all of this. She's Leslie was, with the banana. She really is. She was shocking to the largely conservative population of Arkansas. And there was pushback immediately. 
people felt like she was trying to push pornography into the public school system. Clinton's like, get these girls to wear a condom. <laughs> these boys. And that's the thing. Thankfully, Clinton was backing her up. And he was like, look, I asked her specifically to address this problem. And I watched this clip of him. And he said, and unlike a lot of people in government, she took me seriously. And she's actually trying to do something about it. God. Again, how good... <laughs> I hate him. I hate, I him, hate so him too. Much. I hate him so much, but I just, I also like him. I, Me too. It's the problem. That's why he's so charming. I, I um, mean, if, Hillary Rodham, I if Hillary Rodham can like and hate him at the same time, I feel like we're allowed. I per- agree. Permission card? Permission Permis- card. Permission. <laughs> um, Still hate him. And you know what she him. did? What did she do? Do you want to know what Dr. Elders did? She established a school-based health clinic in all the public schools and surprise surprise when students had access to tools and information teen pregnancy rates dropped but this wasn't her only mission during her tenure she also saw a tenfold increase in early childhood screenings which i didn't know what that was so i looked it up and it's like for like early like developmental things i (laughs) i'm doing a really bad job of explaining it but it i was just it was just like yeah screenings i was like I don't know what that is. So wait, can when, you, when you're pregnant, early childhood screenings? I don't know. She just said early childhood screenings. Okay, so so I, this could be two things. Okay. This could be like you are pregnant and we're screening you to see if the baby is healthy, like ahead of time, which mm. is something that is done. And now you can know like, is my baby going to be born differently abled? And then you can prepare for that, which is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be a child is um, already born and entering the school system and you are determining, like, if they're struggling, like, maybe this child is autistic. Maybe this child is this. So you're, like, in their early childhood figuring out what exactly – is the reason they may be differently able, and then you can adjust. And then you their- can help them, right? I think that was it. I okay, that so then it. that would be like people like so. My cousin has a child who, like, very early on, was um, like coded as autistic, and he's still nonverbal, and he's six, like five or six years old. Um, and if you know early, you can start to like track a child to where they should be. Right. So then it's not like a Rosemary Kennedy situation where like we're putting you in the same grade and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And it's like, okay, so like now we know like we know early on that. Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense to me. And I mean, because the problem is it there's I mean, the 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 terms are like diploma track and non-diploma track. Okay. So if you put a child on non-diploma track then what's happening is you're not expecting them to get A's and B's in your classes. You're expecting them to exist in your class. So they learn how to interact with other students. They can learn socially how to be there, but they are never going to get a high school diploma. The goal is that they make it through education, learning social skills. I'm, I'm so glad that you're in that world because I just don't know anything about it. And I'm, I, I feel like I learned so much. I mean, just doing this because I have multiple kids every year that are non-diploma track. I will also say, I think this is great. This is me drunk talking. I feel like we never get to have these conversations at like family dinner. No. Which again, like I think it's so great. We've been been talking nonstop to each other for 20 years. (laughs) 
Jesus Christ, I hate you. <laughs> too. I hate you as much as I hate Bill Clinton. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> Burn it down. Um, like, no, you're absolutely right. When I learn something from you that's like so uniquely you, I'm like, would this have ever come out? Would, <laughs> would it have ever come out? So um, you're welcome, America, for... <laughs> learning with us you're welcome just miss krista and misty bents <laughs> you've now been on this journey oh my gosh Emily so hill somebody else <laughs> who likes us so everything you just said increases <laughs> by what was the percent 24 percent <laughs> the rise in immunization rates for two-year-olds increases oh somebody that's the 24 yeah, percent yeah, 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 yeah. um the screenings were tenfold. <laughs> we got tenfold and twenty-four. Tenfold screening. Um, and she also expanded the availability of HIV testing and counseling services because she was like, "Hey, people with HIV and AIDS also need our help." This is also the nineties, so big exactly. deal. Exactly, very big deal. You and Princess die. Exactly, and she was like, "You know, what? we also need to expand breast cancer screenings. Women are dying of breast cancer, and we need to help them." And you know who we also need to help? The elderly. So she's like, we need to get better hospice care for the elderly. She is all over the place. She computerized the Arkansas health system. She (laughs) set up their first rape crisis center. Get me out of here. I can't with her. I know. She opened up family planning clinics for all women in Arkansas and helped attract more highly qualified doctors to rural areas of Arkansas so that people across the state, no matter where they lived in conjunction to the capital, had better access to quality health care. She also wanted to address racial inequality in health care. Teen pregnancy was obviously a problem, but she publicly addressed the fact that it was worse for young black women because they often did not have the same kind of access to birth control that wealthy white girls did. Why is she so ahead of her time? I don't know. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe everybody's ahead of our time and we're just behind. She literally, behind, maybe. She, maybe. <laughs> she was like, what you guys don't understand is that wealthy young white girls can get birth control to quote unquote regulate their periods so that they never have to have a conversation about sex because it is like a, like a problem in, you know, a lot of Southern states that like, you just don't talk about it. And she was like, you know, and they can just be like, Oh, I want to have a more regular period. So they get assigned it with like, you know, also being protected from pregnancy instead of like you're a whore if you want birth control yeah exactly right. shaming people of color asking for birth control like they're over sexualized exactly disgusting and she was like another problem with this fucking thing is that young white women are having their periods regular you know regulated by birth control because they have better access to it and it's being literally written into textbooks that black women don't have regular periods. And it's because they don't have the same access to birth control. So she is, again, in the fucking 80s, just like, we need to fix the root causes of the problems. She is the best. I love I, I love her. I love I know. her. I mean- and also, and like, and the whole thing is, too, it's like, you know, we also, as we like to talk about, you know, like you also have to take into consideration when you're talking about like women of color and birth control. She was like, I also don't want to like force them to get it because like it in the past was often detrimental to them and they could leave sterilized. So like there is that 
also barrier of like well the horror of what has happened to people of your race of your gender mm -hmm. in the past just because you've asked for medical help uh, yeah it's scary and that's what she was there to do she there's was a like, lack of i trust. am here to form those bonds of trust she's like i want people to have trust in this system that i am entrenched in and like i know that they don't for good reason so that's what she was there to do oh my god it's the same like so i was thinking about it like recently this week but because i was doing research on grace lee boggs and i was like oh my gosh i feel like <laughs> it's the same way that like young black men have this like innate distrust of the police yeah. is how young black women feel about doctors absolutely and it's with good reason yeah with great reason and it's horrifying yeah it's horrifying to like feel like if you go into this place to have a baby you can come out dead more often yeah than most other people because nobody's gonna listen to you or understand what you need no absolutely so scary i can't i ugh, i know ugh. but she was so good at her job and just had such an incredible vision for healthcare in america that when bill clinton was elected president he brought her in with him and appointed her the surgeon general of the united states making her the second woman to have this position and the first african-american in general to hold this position and even though she was extremely qualified it was a grueling confirmation process she said I came in as a steak and I left as a hamburger, <laughs> like as ground beef. Oh, like, yo, they, they Joan of Arc was, they burnt her up. Brutal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was loved by the left, but Republicans wanted nothing to do with a black female being in charge. Surprise, surprise, surprise. They called her unimpressive and foolish and they grilled her relentlessly because they felt that she was highly unqualified. But through all of this, because she was highly qualified, she was confirmed. But people were outraged. And members of the American Medical Association stood up to this injustice. And they were like, well, you know what? We're going to pass a resolution saying that only doctors can be appointed to the Surgeon General. Thinking, that'll teach her a lesson. And she's like, even if you pass this. I would still be qualified because I am I'm a, a fucking medical doctor. And they literally just couldn't fathom that this black woman was a doctor. They made, they started this entire campaign because they literally just couldn't, they didn't, even, they didn't even think that it was possible that she was a doctor. Unreal. And this racism and sexism, uh, unfortunately, would win out in the end because she only served as Surgeon General of the United States for about 15 months. Months. During her tenure, she spoke out about all the things she had back in Arkansas. Teen pregnancy, sexual education, HIV, abortion. She once famously said, we really need to get over this love affair with the fetus and start worrying about the children. And people didn't like this. And they really didn't like how much she talked about sex and condoms. Republicans even started calling her the condom queen because she was crazy about condoms. And oh, she my God. I'm so – like, ugh. <laughs> Republicans fucking pay women to keep their mouths shut once they have babies. Yeah. And they cannot fathom somebody wanting a condom. Yep. 
I just can't. I'm yep. so angry. They literally like, she has a whole tree of condoms in her office. She's a lunatic. If you can grow and, condoms, give me some. And really, what she had, it was a bouquet of roses That's that really someone cute. had made for her out of condom wrappers. It was like <laughs> lifestyle condom wrappers were red. So they like made her a bouquet of them. And she's like, I love this. That's cute. That's cute. She as a doctor would not have recommended that you use them because they were obviously empty, but whatever the legend of the condom tree and the condom queen lives. Okay. <gasps> condom art. Is this a thing? I want more of it. I don't know much about condom art, but I know of penis puppetry. Um, okay, okay. I, there's a lot of stuff going on that we don't know about that we're not hip to um <laughs> i don't know enough about sex <laughs> tell me more and then people really didn't like when she mentioned that they should really start researching the potential benefits of legalizing marijuana <laughs> she was like maybe incarcerations and crime would decrease if we stopped picking people up and locking them away for 20 years because of an ounce of weed. I don't know. Let's research it. She was too early. And I want to be clear on that because people painted her as like a reckless doctor who was just throwing drugs and condoms at people, which may actually be true of the condoms, but she never said anything about like smoke. More everyone weed. should have weed. She was like, I think we should do research on it because she was again, a highly qualified medical researcher. She was like, let's maybe decriminalize yeah. something that isn't criminal. And she, when she saw a potential benefit from something, she was like, yeah, let's see if this would be positive by researching it. Because she was a good doctor and a good scientist. <laughs> surprise. Surprise. <laughs> so this was the last straw for a lot of people. And unfortunately, when she even just gave a whiff of a pro-marijuana agenda, there was a big media fiasco when her son was arrested for trying to sell cocaine to an undercover cop. But Joycelyn has always believed that this is a framed arrest done in order to embarrass her and President Clinton. She was like, the timing is just too perfect. And she was like, I'm not going to die that like, deny that my son has a substance abuse issue he absolutely does and i'm gonna speak openly about it because yeah he struggles with addiction and we love him and we're trying to help him through this but using him as a political pawn is not okay Mm-mm. you not, don't go for after somebody's kids you no. never ever go after somebody's kids no, but that's the rule it's absolutely the rule but republicans just like wanted her out and they had recently it was the midterm elections. They flipped a lot of seats in the government and they knew that if she just slipped up like really bad, like once they could get her out of there. Damn it. So in early December of 1998, she... Oh, and Clinton's not in a place right now to, to defend no, anyone. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's definitely part of it. He so currently she did not have sex with any woman. No. So she was attending an international conference on HIV AIDS in New York. And this psychologist, Rob Clark, asked her if she thought that they um, should have a more explicit discussion on masturbation and kind of include it in the list of ways to help stop HIV AIDS. He's like, would it be beneficial to be like, oh, like, you know, masturbate first, maybe like sex second, you know, like, should we be talking more about masturbation? 
And she responded with her, you know, normal response of advocating for sexual education. And then she said, as per your specific questions in regard to masturbation, I think that it is something that is part of human sexuality. And it's part of something that perhaps should be taught, but we've not even taught children the very basics. Which, of course, the media spun into the Surgeon General of the United States wants elementary school teachers to teach children how to masturbate. Oh, my God. Which is, of course, that's not what she said. Not what she said. Now, I want to make it clear. She is very pro-masturbation, and she is pro-talking about it. But she wasn't saying, let's teach kids how. A lot of them can figure it out on their own. But she was like, let's teach them not to be ashamed of it. Because if they aren't ashamed of it, then that's a really positive step forward because she was saying that it is a natural part of like, I mean, Katie, most human sexual, um, again, she's beyond, she's beyond, nobody can catch up to her. I t- there are Republican <laughs> congressmen who d- are literally telling us that their wives' pussies are not wet. I like, know. This is literally where we are currently in 2021. So this happening in the 90s, off the charts. Unbelievable. <laughs> and she it's is, like, she's singing WAP right now. And that's the thing. In fact, she said, you know, she was like, when I'm asked if we should teach children about masturbation, the answer is yes. Teach them about is the word. She's like, again, like, we don't exactly need to teach how, but like just telling them that it's not a dirty thing. She like is really important to like not have kids first reaction to like any sexual encounter, even if it's with themselves, be shame and disgust. Your body should not be something that you are like ashamed to touch or be with. Oh my it's gosh. your fucking body. It absolutely is. I mean, I feel like I still deal with the repercussions of that. Like of being like, that's not something I should do. And it's like, why the fuck not? It's like really upsetting. Oh, so I yell at anyone who tries to touch me. <laughs> like, Don't, Get away. Um, But now she looked officially like this crazy woman who wanted to give kids drugs and vibrators, which might sound like a really good Saturday night, but it's obviously not the message that she wanted to get across, but it was too late. And of course, this is 1998, so the Clinton administration is completely entrenched in another sex scandal, the Monica Lewinsky case. Oh, they look like they're open for business. I mean, (laughs) this was literally the worst time for someone like Dr. Elders to be in office and trying to make America more sex positive. (laughs) So because Bill was already in really hot water, he felt like he had to really put his foot down and make an example of her. Yeah, okay, that's fair. And he asked for her resignation. Again, a woman of color feeling the repercussions for a white man's mistakes because mm-hmm. I really don't think that her position would have been so threatened if it weren't for his actions. And oh. that's what upsets me is the f- and that that's why we say like, I hate him because as much as he empowered strong women, he also put them at je- in jeopardy. He for- disenfranchised them as well. Exactly. Yeah. He's doing both at the same time. In, for his own um, gain. For exactly. his own political gain, for sure. Yeah. And a lot of people were devastated by this. Planned Parenthood, HIV AIDS activists, LGBTQ groups were like, she was our last hope. She was the only person in government who really understood what we were trying to get to. She was the only one on our side. Like, what are we going to do? And they felt like her leaving was pulling a huge emergency break on all of their fights for rights. 
but obviously it wasn't up to them. But the good thing is she never backtracked or said that she did anything wrong. And she left that office with her head held high. Hell yeah. Just knowing that the world wasn't quite ready for her. Frankly, it's still not ready for her, which is upsetting. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm Yeah, we're ready here. Come here. So <laughs> she <on> the pod. <laughs> left the White House and she went back to the interview, University of Arkansas Medical School. She became a professor of pediatrics and she just continued to do what she always did. She travels around. She gives lectures on sex and sexual health. She is also now a firm believer in legalizing medical marijuana, like, you know, marijuana in general. She once said, I think we consume far more dangerous drugs that are legal. Cigarette smoking, nicotine, alcohol. I feel like they cause much more devastating effects physically. We need to lift the probation on marijuana. In 2009, Dr. Elders teamed up with the University of Minnesota to establish the nation's first chair in sexual health education, a fund to attract and retain outstanding tenured sexual health education faculty in program in the program uh, in human sexuality mm. at the University of Minnesota Medical School. She has been featured on the Penn and Teller show BS, where she disperses the myth of abstinence-only education. She was also featured in the documentary Sticky a love story, a, a self-love story, a documentary on masturbation, and another documentary called How to Lose Your Virginity. And she is constantly being interviewed by anyone who will have her because thankfully she refuses to stop talking about sex and sexual wellness because that shit is important. I am ah! obsessed with her. I know. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I'd never heard of her. I I mean, A, virginity is a construct. And absolutely. B, masturbation is healthy and normal. And why aren't we? And abstinence only is like a torture to our society. And it's child abuse. Just like she said, it is child abuse to actively withhold information. Well, but do, like, do you know the biggest issue I have with abstinence only is that the people that teach you that fundamentally let people abuse young boys Absolutely. and girls in their families and in their communities without speaking out. And then they get pissed about the me too movement. So don't fuck with me about abstinence only because I will kill you. That's exactly right. Like I literally murder you and your family. Like <laughs> <laughs> I won't. Okay. But- <laughs> so now we need to talk about these two Awesome women together <laughs> in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. Okay. I, mean, I think we need to start with their fucking moms. Yeah. Cool moms. I feel like their moms were such rebels, such right. badasses. And I feel like they were just like, I am going to do better by my daughter. Yeah. And you know what their daughters did was try and change the fucking world. Right. And I mean, listen, I, like uh, motherhood is scary and horrifying and it's not for everybody and some people don't want to do it and shouldn't have to. Um, but if you're going to be a rebel ass mom, be prepared for your daughters to deal with shit. Yeah. Because they are going to show up to elementary school, middle school, high school and be speaking on your wild ass. They, they're going to repeat you. Oh, yes. And <laughs> then they... They get it sometimes because yep. they're not, you know, it's like when you're an early feminist and someone says something and you don't know what to say back. It's the same as like 
teaching your children feminist ideas they yeah. go and they say them and then they don't know how to defend them it's very cute and i love it but just what be is prepared. it happens be in all kids it. <laughs> yeah it's very cute but i think both of their families it's very interesting we're also in the food industry yes so like this farming and this chinese food restaurant is it's very neat that like their moms were very like you know I so strong and so powerful and their dads were very like we're supplying a need for society regardless of what you think about us as a person or a race I feel like their dads were just like I'm just trying to get by <laughs> and they did they're like you ladies can do whatever you want but like I need more hands in this restaurant and I need more hands on this fucking farm like you know what I'm saying I feel like they just came from these families that like are so similar they're shockingly similar and well, what also about how, oh go oh no you go ahead how what about how smart they are they're so smart <laughs> i couldn't katie i couldn't well, and that's the thing you know that they're really fucking smart because they grew up in families that should have been like you do a b and c and that's fucking it and they were literally too smart to be denied like right and it's not that the, other people who do that aren't smart they're no, very smart there but are there are people who like run up and they're like i'm gonna jump this hurdle well and also like there are some people who were like yeah like i was told i was a genius when i was a kid but i just like didn't want to do it or like whatever and like there are people that definitely have similar iqs but like don't go into public service yep. and, like that's fine people but, tell like, me every day i'm great and i teach sixth grade <laughs> like, Katie, i'm a fucking billboard for underachievement <laughs> But the thing is that I think it's important to have like these like, you know, young geniuses in these types of situations because they're being young geniuses and also clocking the fact that everyone around them or like a lot of people around them are struggling and they're interpreting it differently. They're like, that person is not doing okay. Like, how can I make sure that the next generation is better? Like, how can I make sure that people have equal opportunities when I get older because they have, they are so smart that they do have that future mindset of like, I see people around me not living up to their full potential because of racism and inequality. So like, right. What can I do to fucking change? That? Well, it's a great story of like, you know, I think a lot of feminism over time has been like, I'm going to break the glass ceiling, but then it's like, you're there alone. So yeah. I think both of these women were like, I am trying to change things for everyone, not just myself, which is a bigger statement. I have never thought about the glass, the idea of the glass seeing being so solitary. It's just you. It's just you. And it's also like the picture of one glass ceiling. Right. When it's like these women saw so much more than that because they were dealing with so much more than that. And well, they and were you can, like, it's not just one and it's not just me. It's everybody. We need to work at this from a philosophical standpoint, from a, you know, community standpoint, from a government standpoint. Like we need to fix the fuck. They were both so fuck focused on the root of the problem because they saw what a big problem it was. And I've always thought about the glass ceiling of like, yeah, but when you break through, like, you can put a ladder down, but still only one person can come through at a time. So it's so mind blowing to think about like, there are these women who can pose in this like male environment, but like that doesn't mean the masses can come through all at once. Right. Because I think that a lot of women are, you're right, putting a ladder down and not building an escalator up. Exactly. 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. Did we break I... feminism? Did we just break? <laughs> <laughs> Don't let a ladder down. Build an escalator up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that Don't... was. I'm very happy about that idea. Um, but because I also we're so think fucking dumb. I also think <laughs> we're gonna listen back to this and be like, "What the hell were no, we no, talking no. about?" No, no, no. We just changed the world. We just, just changed now. the world. Okay, but I feel like both of them had these moments where they're like, "Wow, racism is even bigger and worse than I even expected." <laughs> yeah, because it's like they both obviously knew how entrenched racism was and then they were still surprised well, by it I, that's great because i'm surprised by it and then i feel ashamed that i'm surprised yeah. by it. but at least these two women of color i'm like at least they were also we're surprised. also like wow because i feel <laughs> like again i i feel like i'm such a pe- pessimist sometimes because i'm like it can always get worse <laughs> like they were both like wow it can get worse but they were also trying to like make it better and i just feel like they did that by questioning the systems that they were in because at the end of the day it was like dr elders is in the system that oppresses people and she is in it and she has to grapple with the fact that like her label doctor is the same as the label that people used to abuse people like her and i i don't know how she dealt with that but she did because she knew that like there has to be people that go in before and try try so hard to change it because if there's if you can't see it, you can't be it. And she knew that from experience. And I feel like that's exactly what Grace was doing. She's like, if I can't see change, change, if I can't see Asian activists and black activists working together, like I can't, you know, other people can't be it. And like, I feel like that is such a strong message of both of these stories is like, you need like, there's such a power in working together and like there's also a power in being like this like recognizing that the system is fucked up and like we need to change it because again grace and jimmy were like from an early on like the minorities are not against each other but the minorities need to band together because the system of the white patriarchy is fucking things up and they want us to fight and you know dr elders was like I see that the problem is like misinformation because white doctors have been white male doctors have been in charge for so long that we're literally getting bad textbooks. Right. And if there's one thing that you should be able to fucking trust, it is a textbook because it's teaching the next whole generation of people. And she's like, why are the textbooks giving wrong information? And she's like the old, like not the only one I'm sure, but she's like one of the early people being like, we need to fucking talk about this. Well, and I think the problem becomes when you're an activist, like these two women, you start to be seen as an eternal pessimist. Mm. But I think if you do it long enough, you're kind of proving that you're an eternal optimist. You really view the changes. It's going to happen. It's something that you really believe is true. Yeah. You really believe but in a better future. But everybody's like, why do you keep tisking? And you're like, I'm yeah. not. I'm just trying to make it better. No, absolutely. I don't know. I'm obsessed with both of them. I think they, I, I, you know, I'm sad I didn't know both of them existed, but that's why we do the show. No, it is. And I also feel like they are truly just unsung heroes of their fields because, like, I feel like we can equate them to 
Dr. Ruth and like Gloria Steinem. Right. Like people who were doing similar work, but get so much more, you know, traction. Right. And I feel like they are just two women who were pushed to the sidelines. Well, it's about being palatable. Yeah. How palatable, how marketable can you be? Yeah. And obviously both of these women, people were like, no, like (laughs) (laughs) not going to have it. Yeah, exactly. But I am just, again, so grateful that we got to hear both of their stories tonight because they're incredible. They are. Are you ready to toast? I'm so ready, Allie. Who would you like to toast tonight? So actually today I want to toast creators. Mm. I think we spent a lot of time toasting movers and shakers, which is who Grace Lee Boggs is. But I think it takes so much energy to write a book about someone, to create a documentary, to like be ready to like tell these other people's stories. So I'm really focused on this young documentary maker because it's really the only true information about Grace Lee Boggs that I got. So I just want to toast young women and men that are going around writing articles, writing biographies, making documentaries because these boring Wikipedia pages are not enough. And I'm so proud of people who are like, I'm going to dedicate the next 10 years of my life to telling this person's story because it's worth it. Yeah. So to creators. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. You know that I'm going to toast women who keep fucking talking, which is us. (laughs) Talk, 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 talk. Which is us and Grace. 70,000 minutes a year. Joycelyn. <laughs> I just feel like if you keep talking, you can keep having a discussion. You can keep learning. And I feel like Joycelyn, Dr. Elders, never stopped talking because she was so actively trying to be like, you should not be ashamed of sex. You should not be ashamed of act. Like you should be talking about it so we can yeah. fucking teach people that this is okay. And this is not okay. And I, she was literally fired from one of the highest positions in government for speaking too much. And she didn't stop. She didn't back down. And, uh, and she is also like learning as she goes. Like, you know, she, is an endocrinologist. So now she is like such a big, like trans rights activist in a time where trans rights are being so threatened. And I'm so nervous about the future of our trans youth because I feel like they are just being attacked right now. Mm. And I just feel like she was doing the work so early on. And I feel like she thought we were going to be so much further now. Um, but we need people like her to just not stop talking. So I'm right. going to toast them. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Don't stop. All right, Allie, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So I'm currently reading the book Good and Mad. Ooh, okay. Um, and it's just about the power of women anger in politics. And it's just about how... Um, Over the history of the United States, women's anger has been seen as shrill and unapproachable and how, like, female politicians have to get dialect coaches to, like, try to be presentable to the public. And I just, I really like it. The book's written by a woman of color, and she's just touching on all of this American history about how women are supposed to suppress their madness Mm. and how we're taught to 
laugh in the face of injustice because it's more acceptable to men and to giggle and to be fun and to be approachable because anger is not fun. Um, and I love it. It's such a good book. That's so powerful. It is. Um, and I mean, the author's open. Like there's so many books written about women's anger. This one is specifically about women's anger in politics and why men, uh, I mean, what the chapter I'm on right now, I'm not done, but it's about how like Hillary Clinton was so like treated poorly because of the way she spoke and like Bernie Sanders in the same party. She does a great job of like talking. He yells constantly, you know, like yeah. when he's giving speeches and people are just like, yeah. Well, I love that meme. That's like, but she was being so emotional and it's like AOC and Hillary Clinton. just like stone faced in meetings and, and like, like Brett crying and all like crying, yeah. crying and sobbing. Uh-huh. It's like, who's the fuck being emotional now? Right. Exactly. I don't know. It's such a good book and it's definitely worth a read or a listen. If mm. you are into American politics and just want to feel your anger because mm. it's been really nice to just like there are moments I've been listening to book the book and gotten chills and then like broken down into tears because I'm like oh my god I thought that about that woman Ugh. like fuck me you know well and you know what nothing's better than crying Ugh. so <laughs> nothing's for better real. than a good cry good and cry I'm not good and it. mad good and cry okay what are you liking in pop culture um I am going to promote something that I talked to you about last week, but I hadn't quite finished yet. It's a mm. podcast series by 30 for 30 mm-hmm. called Heavy Metals. Do it. And it is an A to Z of what happened to women's gymnastics in the United States. And it yeah. literally goes from like this couple, you know, the the Romanian team, um, Bella, damn it, I can't remember his name because <laughs> it was last week. But, and it is about how like, they kind of came in and changed women gymnastics and they were like, and it's the story of how the United States decided to prioritize gold medals in the Olympics over young women's safety. Oh, the Carolis. That was it. Mm -hmm. And the series ends with Larry Nasser, and it ends with the fact that like, he was the one doctor that they could trust that would clear girls to compete when he knew that they had fractures. Mm. There was a girl that had a stress fracture in her shin and he cleared her to compete even though it was, she was not okay to compete. She needed to rest and heal. But the Carolis knew that like, he would lie for them. He would lie for them right. and they would lie for him. And it is just the story of these incredible young women who, despite being literally abused for years, went on to win gold medals, but the cost of it. And I think it is so important to hear because you and I both love the Olympics. Love we it. fucking love it. But those people's bodies are torn to shreds. Yeah. And... And if it's not by your own choosing and you're a fucking teenage child, it's not okay. It's also one of the things that they did to these girls, which I can't even fathom, is they would starve them. Which, like, we know that calorie intake is very important when you're exerting so much energy. Michael Phelps had, like, 8,000 calories a day. I was honestly thinking about when, you know, there used to be those commercials of Michael Phelps eating stacks of waffles and bacon and whatever he wanted for breakfast because he had to eat that many calories 
And I was like, how fucked up is that? That like, you know, Allie Raisman is looking in that and being like, I'm not allowed to eat at all during the day. And I still have to get on the balance beam and flip 12 times in the air and like do all this shit. And like, just every time you look at amazing gymnasts from the past, remember that they're literally not allowed to eat during the day. And just imagine doing that on an empty stomach because that's what they're doing. So I just, it's, it's a really enlightening yeah. series, but I wanted to mention the eating thing because they're, they give a warning about, you know, physical and emotional assault. But I feel like something that is often kind of disregarded is like eating issues. Eating and I know disorders. I have a lot of friends who like, are like I have issues about food and like, you know, it's not something that is appropriately addressed like other things are and like this has a lot to do with food and like so I I just wanted to give you a warning that if it is something that is hard for you to listen to like it's not the easiest content to get through because it is a shocking amount of this series but I think it's really important especially when yeah especially when you're looking at you know something that we would all love to aspire to Mm -hmm. like I don't know so heavy metals 30 for 30 it's very good but very hard to listen to well everybody those that was a long one hey we're all i mean they're all long at this point yeah (laughs) after um after this episode go find us everywhere else if you need more of us we're in so many places youtube linkedin facebook instagram obviously podcasts you found us already you found us already all we want is just more of you and we want you to tell us who to cover and we're in season nine so next season is gonna be wild exactly we're getting crazy we're gonna pick like the (laughs) craziest people um and they're gonna be doing all criminals um pretty much all the bangers we (laughs) haven't covered we're doing next season but so and we want you to rate and review us we got a review this week from three two one four five six six five. Whoa! <laughs> that just said amazing. <laughs> and you just wrote us this amazing review about how you found us on Instagram, and we love that we're here for your sanity walks. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> because everybody needs them nowadays, and we love you. So if you want to be like that series of numbers, um, rate and review us because it really means the world to us, and we love it. And But most of all, we want you to never forget that well-behaved women don't get angry and they rarely make history. Bye-bye. Listening to her story on the rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.